This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 13th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. What does a vigorous policing of speech on campus get us? One argument is that it allows people to fully experience who they are in a world without so-called microaggressions. Greg Lukianoff with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education argues that policing speech leaves young people less able and often less willing to handle the challenges of adult life. How did we get to the point at which we have so many uh, ridiculous cases of censorship and speech policing uh, on college campuses? Now, I talk a lot about this in my book on learning liberty, um, and I talk about bureaucracy. I talk about fear of litigation, but political correctness is, of course, a huge part of it as well. And in the big feature article that uh, social psychologist um, John Haidt and I just wrote in The Atlantic, uh, we talk about a kind of novel theory where we take uh, cognitive behavioral therapy theory and apply it to campuses to make the argument that universities have been modeling what are called cognitive distortions for students for decades now. All right. So what is a cognitive distortion and and how... How does that work in the college setting? Uh, so the first, th- first thing I should say is like people should really read the whole article. It, it, it's thousands of words and we honestly could have written tens of thousands more on this topic because we, we just find it t- fascinating. But cognitive distortions is, is a relatively simple idea. Um, to, to put it really plainly, it's more or less a uh, mental exaggeration. Um, it's uh, an irrational mental exaggeration of a problem. So for example, a lot of people, and everybody engages in these, everyone engages in these pretty much, maybe Spock doesn't engage in these or something like that. Um, but uh, one of them is for dichotomous thinking or black and white thinking where you, you, you tell yourself um, when you're feeling anxious, wow, if this date doesn't go well, my life is over. Or if I don't get an A in this class, I'll never find a job where either the, the possibilities are one or zero. Um, and that's almost never true. So CBT is really unique and interesting in that it teaches you to look at when your brain's doing that and essentially talk it down. One of the uh, examples that you use here is uh, the posting of a an installation on a set of stairs that goes into uh, at, a, at a university that had to be taken down. The, the installation was about microaggressions, and it had to be taken down because a student group felt that the installation itself constituted a microaggression. So is is this the kind of problem that in universities we might not worry about so much because it will, in fact, devour itself? Well, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that uh, it, when it comes to freedom of speech, it is genuinely a slippery slope. Um, and things that we thought were absurd nightmare monster scenarios back in the 70s for when you start regulating speech, you know, have come true to an extent that which if you were to parody, for example, what you're talking about, this happened at Brandeis, by the way. And what happened was, and what's interesting is that this podcast should probably come with an index because there's there's probably a lot of new vocabulary for some listeners. Um, and microaggressions is probably one of them. And so just because so, not everyone knows what it means even. Uh, and so a microaggression is um, a small, uh, often unconscious um, uh, uh, slip of the tongue or, or slight that, that is either perceived as a slight or meant, uh, usually not meant as a slight, that is ra- racially or sexi- uh, racially offensive or sexist. And this is a theory that's been around for a, you know, probably since the 1970s, that people commit microaggressions. Now, I think it's an interesting theory to study, but in the past year, universities, including Ithaca College, which I've talked about here before, have actually started policing microaggressions, which kind of misses the point. Now, nothing better encapsulates the idea of, of cognitive distortions being applied on campuses than microaggressions, because microaggressions are literally tiny little things that you choose to accept as violence that might be unconscious, that might be well-intended, that you might even, frankly, be imagining. Um, and what we're telling people is, hey, fixate on that. 
fixate on that. L- l- look for these things everywhere. A- and what's interesting about CBT is it tells you that if you do actually literally sweat the small stuff and you, and you pay strong attention to every time you might be unconsciously attacked by someone, you're setting yourself up not only for a situation where people can't talk with, with candor, you're setting yourself up, frankly, for a miserable life. You know, the parallel I like to draw to the way I, I think college students are being trained to think is uh, Times Square. Mm-hmm. You go to Times Square and it is oppressive how much media you face. And in fact, that was broadly has been my experience many in, on many visits to New York, which is you're constantly confronted with text, media, sales pitches, and things like that. And it can be very bothersome. And so when I think about microaggressions, I think, well, this is obviously something that has a cumulative effect, that it will uh, lead someone to think perhaps, well, you know, my life might not be that great because I've been bombarded over time with this uh, idea that I've absorbed without really knowing that I've absorbed it. Well, and that is part of the theory of microaggressions is, is that it creates, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's a, it's an area worthy of study. But if you have, if you actually start policing them, really, I think what you're saying is a very a sort of elitist idea that essentially there's only one way to talk to each other, and it's basically talking on eggshells. Um, but I also, you know, as I make the point again, it, it is literally a magnification. It's saying uh, that I don't, I'm not giving you the benefit of the doubt. I'm not assuming you might be a good person. I'm going to assume I'm under assault at all times and have to be at this heightened level of uh, of, of awareness and of, and of stress, frankly, all the time um, in a situation that, frankly, might might not it might not be called for. Once again, a cognitive distortion. In, in one of Robert Anton Wilson's books, Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea wrote a book called The Illuminatus Trilogy, and there's a, there's a, de- there's a section in there called uh, Seeing the Fnords, F-N-O-R-D. And the idea is that once you start seeing them, you start seeing them everywhere. And uh, like you say, if, if we're uh, getting people to focus on minor slights, that seems to be, in a lot of ways, training them to be less resilient, to be less able to deal with the real world. It assumes fragility. It also assumes that there's a sort of perfect class of people who know exactly how to talk to each other. And by the way, it ends up sounding an awful lot like the only people who should be allowed to talk are, you know, uh, Smith or Harvard-educated experts in how to talk, which I think is fundamentally elitist. Uh, But meanwhile, kind of like when I – on the theory of cognitive distortions, you know, I also think that universities teach a lot of ways to overreact. And so I think the thing that they most often teach students is this idea of catastrophizing, which is also a cognitive distortion which is essentially you take something small and say, oh, my God, we're all going to die. And I see this in, in case at, at my organization, fire after case after case after case, where universities are telling, uh, essentially modeling for students, hey, if something's slight that no, no sane person would normally react to at all, by the way, it's probably safest to overreact to it entirely. We've discussed this before, I think, but do public and private universities differ in how they deal with this? They might differ in terms of, you know, the level of state involvement or the, or the uh, range degrees of freedom that they have to create a a very sort of robust, thoughtful environment. But do public and private universities differ in how they deal with these kinds of issues? Well, definitely the law as it applies to public and private universities are different. The First Amendment applies to uh, public universities. It doesn't apply to private universities. But our stance overall is that uh, if you promise freedom of speech and if you promise due process and if you promise academic freedom, whether you're public or private, you should be held to your promises. Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, I assume other comedians have said 
oh, I just I can't do college campuses anymore. Patton Oswalt has taken this you know over this reactive, overly reactive attitude about uh, jokes that people, some people don't find funny, and has uh, made a lot of hay with it, and has done brilliantly, I might add. But uh, what do we know about how college students think about things that? Are funny. Well, there's a, a great article in the same issue of The Atlantic about comedy on campus and about how, how safe you have to play it, which is, of course, you know, if you have to play it too safe, that kills comedy. So I when, I when I came out with my first book on Learning Liberty, I did a podcast at the uh, Comedy Cellar. And the most liberal uh, comedian on the panel said that even he, this is back in 2012, said that even he didn't like to play campuses anymore. So we got this idea of trying to do a documentary about comedy uh, on campus. And so working with Ted Balaker, we're actually coming out sometime in the next, you know, six months to a year, a, a documentary called Can We Take a Joke? And so um, talking about, you know, one, outrage culture, um, how how easy, how, how hard it is to be a comedian these days in, a, in, in an outrage culture, and how campuses contribute to this sort of overreaction to uh, uh, to free speech. And so far, we've already got Penn Jillette involved in it. We, um, he, he's been interviewed for it. Adam Carolla. We've got Lisa Lampanelli. Gilbert Gottfried, who has some of the best lines in the whole thing. Um, I, I got to watch an advanced and, and, But these are people, these are people who, uh, in part, Offending you is part of the reason exactly. you go see them. Yeah, Heather McDonald is in it, and she puts it very simply: if you're easily offended, maybe you shouldn't go to a comedy show. So, <laughs> <laughs> what are we to draw from that specifically? Um, well, you know, I think that the the, the lesson of can we take a joke is uh, to remember that if we are constantly walking on eggshells, um, that w- that it kills humor, but also that comedy serves a really important role. It shines a light on the things we don't want to talk about. And they're funny in part because, as Lisa Lampanelli puts it, because we're afraid of them. Um, and I think that this uh, sort of sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not kind of uh, hyper-therapeutic camp- uh, environment on campus that tries to protect anyone from offense um, ends up producing really bad results. And, uh, and as we point out in different ways for students' mental health, for their intellectual development, and sh- certainly for discourse, and certainly for the ability to crack jokes and get to know each other and relax a little bit around each other and be honest and engage in candor. All these things that are so valuable to genuine human interaction, we, we seem to be, we seem to want to short circuit them. One of the phrases you like to use is disinvitation season, referring to commencement speakers or just in general speakers who are invited to campus to speak, who then are uninvited because uh, certain student groups get upset and say this person either doesn't doesn't represent some proper view of the world and therefore shouldn't be allowed to speak here. Do comedians get that as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, it, it, it's it's tough being a, com- a comedian on campus. Definitely read read Caitlin Flanagan's article about this because it really is sort of depressing when they show how many hoops you have to jump through in order to be inoffensive enough, inoffensive enough to, uh, to, to be able to uh, do comedy on campus. Um, it's it's, it's, it, it's kind of sad. And that's one of the reasons why we focus on um, Lenny Bruce. Uh, and, and we parallel the story of the, of the great iconoclastic comedian Lenny Bruce from the 1960s, who used to love doing college campuses. In fact, he actually um, he, he actually died uh, on uh, yesterday, August 3rd um, in, in 1966. And his last gig was actually at UCLA. 
Uh, meanwhile, though, Lenny Bruce's uh, kind of comedy, which is you know pretty pretty harsh and actually intentionally will even use uh, try to make, uh, for example, trying to defang racial epithets, for example, is one of his one of his bits with the idea that eventually we have to let words not hurt us so much. Um, that would get you kicked off campus in a heartbeat. And so that's kind of the through line of this new movie, uh, Can We Take a Joke, where we talk about, you know, Lenny Bruce would not survive a minute today. But <laughs> people like Louis C.K. Right. Are, is the best thing going in stand-up comedy. Uh, Chris Rock is is often, often highly offensive and hilarious. Uh, Patton Oswalt as well, also highly offensive and, and hilarious. And to be clear, would not survive a, a minute on an awful lot of campuses. Um, do they survive just fine on, on uh, at the Comedy Cellar? Well, you know, actually, I, uh, interestingly, I have a, um, a whole section of the Comedy Cellar because I know the, the person who runs it, uh, for some reason, he liked my first book about free speech. Maybe he saw some overlap. Um, but he talks about how even at the comedy cellar, people show up um, primed to be offended and primed to demand that comedians not play anymore if they say jokes. And these are people who show up to a comedy show in Greenwich Village. So while it's certainly there's there's still room and space for the Adam Carollas uh, of, of, of the world. Um, it's quite a thing when people are actually coming to edgy uh, comedians to tell them, hey, by the way, stop being edgy. The, the difficulty uh, for some comedians, I've heard both Chris Rock and Patton Oswalt talk about this is the fact that when you go to a comedy club and you do a bit that maybe isn't worked out quite right, exactly. you don't have it all worked out, that can be crystallized yep. by some joker with a, a cell phone in the audience. Uh, because in, in, in a sense, that makes it harder to even work stuff out. Right, exactly. That is to say, you can't, it's, it's harder to test things uh, before an audience because the outrage machine is, is primed. Uh, constantly to attack you, and this is a you know this is a metaphor for for what Jonathan Rauch calls liberal science. Uh, generally, not just in comedy, we're always trying out ideas, and we're not going to get to very good ideas unless we can tinker with them. And that involves you know the, the best uh, you know idea of creation sometimes involves 999 bad ideas uh, for for the one good one. Uh, but when we stop doing that, uh, when we stop, when we start stifling that process, you, you come up with you know less creative, less interesting ideas because you haven't even started the process of of of, of shooting of, of shooting the breeze on different uh, different ways of thinking. I feel like there's a word for that. Yeah, um, to- tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to- I, I, I keep on coming back lately to um, uh, different ideas that are really basic. You know, like we. we Giving people the benefit of the doubt, um, uh, recognizing that you don't know everything, uh, recognizing that you don't know where wisdom comes from, recognizing um, that you might not really understand someone's point, that it might be many levels of irony, that they might be saying exactly the opposite of what you think they're saying, Uh, taking a deep breath, all of these like old-fashioned habits to uh, engage in candor and live in a genuinely pluralistic world are habits that are also good for conversation, just like the theory of cognitive distortions actually is a way of essentially saying, you know, uh, it's really helpful to argue fairly with yourself, and it probably wouldn't hurt so badly if you argued a little more fairly with each other. One of the words that I find very triggering, or a (laughs) phrase that I find Find very triggering is blank contributes to a climate of yeah. blank. Yeah, it's a, a re- slippery thought, but it's it's an assertion that pretty much anyone can make, and and there is seems to be this uh, growing uh, ability for a phrase like that to have credence and uh, be used effectively to shut down speakers. 
Yeah, I'm actually work, starting to work on my next book, and it's tentatively titled Freedom of Speech, You're Doing It Wrong, <laughs> um, which is more or less trying to really cover some of, uh, some of the most basic ideas uh, of free speech. And, and it all comes from, you know, it's a phrase I've used uh, with you before, epistemic humility. Essentially, as soon as you realize you don't know everything, it, it, it puts on you this idea of observe the world, try to know what it's actually like. And, and, and that means warts and all. Uh, but meanwhile, it seems like universities, you know, trains uh, people to be able to avoid meaningful discussion. And with this very sort of narrow idea of what discussion should actually look like. Um, I mean, University of New Hampshire just got in trouble um, uh, nationally for coming out with this guide to talking to each other um, that, talk, that, that told people to avoid, you know, the word American because that's offensive to, to South Americans. My favorite one was they told people to avoid the word Arab because it's offensive. And I'm like, Okay, is this Michael Scott acting here? I mean, if, if you don't know what I'm referring to, in a famous episode of The Office called Diversity Day, he's talking to his Mexican-American employee, Oscar, and he says, oh, yeah, um, so I'm Mexican. It's like, ooh, can we use something less offensive than Mexican? Which, of course, totally offends Oscar. He's like, why is Mexican offensive? So they actually listed Arab without qualification as being, you know, problematic language, referring to it when it's like, my vice president of fire is, is Arabic. He doesn't think of it as offensive to be described as what his background actually is. Um, so, it, it, but what's interesting, at the core of this is this idea idea that there is a, a sort of an a, a elite of perfect speakers of enlightened beings who can actually teach um, the, the, the less enlightened, less educated how to correctly talk to each other. And it, ju it just completely reminds me of sort of Victorian era thinking that essentially there's only this one class of people um, that knows how decent people speak to each other. And those lower ones, by the way, we should avoid their music and, the, and, and their earthy talk. And these less robust women who may faint at certain words being uttered. It, it, uh, yeah, well, that, that, that's, one of the, that, that, that's been one of the things that's been really interesting in, the, um, uh, in, in what's going on in England. You know, I was talking to Joanna Williams about this, who's, who's a free speech advocate over there. And just the, that it does seem to be uh, a lot of the justifications for censorship these days do seem to be premised on very old fashioned ideas of, of fragility, particularly of women, which, which a lot of women find deeply offensive. Nadine Strawson actually just gave a speech at our former head of the ACLU, just gave a speech at FIRE Student Conference talking about, I don't really appreciate this attempt to reintroduce uh, 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 this fragile concept of, of, of women in order to sort of achieve a, uh, a censorship of ideas you don't like. Greg Lukianoff is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Subscribe to this and other Cato podcasts using the new Cato Audio app for iPhone and iPad. Learn more at Cato.org.